You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. On today's show, Robert Jones Jr., also known as Son of Baldwin. I can't imagine the ways in which institutionalized racism has a direct impact on the health of Black people, the physical health of Black people the way in which it may be impacting us on the cellular level, and the ways in which white supremacy might know this and is glad. Our ancestors fought every moment of every day in a myriad of ways, and loving each other was one of those ways. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host today, Jesse Strauss. Generations of struggle for honesty and openness about queer love have not been able to penetrate political and often interpersonal cultures of homophobia and violence. We're going to talk with an author today who wrote a novel that creates space for queer love in a devastating context. The Prophets is the story of a deep south plantation in the 1800s. It's a story that explores the beginnings of white supremacy and the terror of racial violence that this country was founded on in plantation slavery, where Africans and their descendants were forced into a legal and economic framework that deemed them property, a framework that is fundamentally dehumanizing. At the same time, this book is a deeply humanizing love story. It sets the scene for two of the book's main characters, two enslaved men, to experience romance, to experience lust, and to dream of freedom together. I'll be honest that this novel, The Prophets, was hard for me to read, and I imagine that it should be for anyone. It's brutally honest about the violence of slavery. And also, I couldn't put it down. The book is dynamic, it's powerful, it's incredibly nuanced, it's poetic, and it's just beautiful. In addition to this book, our guest today has written for The New York Times, Essence and the Paris Review, and has contributed to 400 Souls and the 1619 Project. He's the creator and curator of the social justice, social media community, Son of Baldwin, which has 300,000 followers. The Prophets is his debut book. Robert Jones Jr., thank you so much for joining us today. Jesse, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. You know, I'm really looking forward to the conversation I have so many questions for you, and this book was so provocative to me, but I'm wondering if we can start the conversation by bringing our listeners directly into the text with a passage from the book. Certainly. Um, And for listeners who might not have read The Prophets, the story of Samuel and Isaiah um, and their love on a uh, antebellum slavery plantation in uh, Mississippi I also delve back further in time to a before time, as I call it, in Africa. And that love between Samuel and Isaiah is mirrored in another couple, Kosai and Alewa. And we, we mostly see them um, during a sort of middle passage. And I'll be reading from a chapter called Song of Songs, which describes how Kosai um, rebels on one of the slave ships during the Middle Passage. Kosai held on to the boy's budding sympathy with both hands, marveled at its shape, rubbed its smooth edges, and let its sweetness dance on his tongue 
it was alive, curled into its own warmth and only unfurled slowly, like a fist opening onto peace. This was kind, but too late. Kosai had already spotted the pulse of life throbbing in the boy's neck, and this too had its calling, loud and rambunctious, wide open and seductive. It asked for him and he obliged. He shot up and roped his chains around the skinless boy's neck, then snatched his wrists apart. The boy kicked and struggled and thrashed. Kosai didn't let go. The others began to charge him, but Kosai had already managed to pull himself back up against the half wall of the deck. He took a deep breath and shouted, this triumph is for Elewa in the name of King Akusa. Then he fell backward over the wall of the ship, the boy in his grasp. With them, the two other people chained to Kosai crashed down into the waves, shocked, then comforted by the cold embrace of the water, soothed by the sea foam, and then absorbed. Kosai wouldn't swim. He held onto the skinless boy until his body was still, then he let out his own breath, and together they began to sink. Such a shame, but he had to do it, had to. Pressed into this corner, there was no way he was going to die alone. It had already been determined. They shall die together, for this was glory. Elewa. As they descended, Kosai prayed for forgiveness from the woman and the man who were chained to him. He didn't ask them if they had wanted to drown, but took it upon himself to drag them into the deep, way down, lower now than the bottom of the beast they had dropped from. Maybe that was the sin his father left out of the story. The part about how, in order to survive the mountain people, they had to come down from a mountain of their own, had to wear the remains of some other people's children around their own necks. Victors gave themselves the right to rename murder triumph and adorn themselves with jewelry made from the bones of the vanquished. So this is what it looks like, Kosai said to himself as the shifty, watery light began to fade. The view from the mountain top, it hurts. Then, as the blackness took everything, good. That's the voice of Robert Jones Jr. reading from his book, The Prophets. I feel very spoiled getting to hear you read it in your own voice. I just finished this book and it was such a pleasure. I want to talk about the writing process itself. Okay. As as you just read from this passage, you dive deeper into history before slavery and explore 
some context of pre-colonial African cultures and first encounters with Europeans and then, of course, what you just read from the Middle Passage. And I'm just wondering, like, in your writing process and also your research process, how did you imagine what queer identities could look like, what potentially homophobia could have looked like in in this historical context that is like so far beyond what we generally learn about the early parts of the American project. Indeed. And that was the the thing that led me to want to write a book like this was because, you know, as a, a undergraduate student, I was an Africana studies minor mm. and I was reading all of these beautiful works by the ancestors, um, slave narratives, um, all of the work that was being done in um, during the Harlem Renaissance and, and forward. And what kept striking me was the absence of the Black queer figure, particularly prior to the Harlem Renaissance. And I scoured the canon looking for examples. And I, f- I found them, but always in the context of sexual assault or rape. So for example, in Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, she describes how an enslaved man is chained to his master's bed and that his master would use him for sexual pleasure. And then um, if we skip ahead some some centuries um, to Toni Morrison's Beloved, um, there is a scene in which one of her characters, Paul D., is sexually assaulted by a male overseer. And I thought, this seems factual. This seems like things that would have happened in these depraved times. Mm. But my question was, well, what about love? And so I could not find it in, in the, in the uh, canon. And so I said, um, well, I'm going to listen to what Toni Morrison herself said. She said, if you cannot find the book you wish to read, then you must write it. Um, and so I said, okay, now I'm going to have to imagine wholesale what it must have been like to be Black and queer without having that title because the queer title comes much later and how people might have reacted to the idea of this arrangement. And surprisingly, where I found the key to unlock this riddle was in African, continental African oral traditions. Because to my surprise, and what might be a surprise to many of the listeners, is that queer identity, transgender identity, or those things that we now call queer and transgender, had a place on the continent. Um, Esther Arma, who is an amazing artist, activist, scholar um, from Ghana, she relayed that her people, the Ga people, did not even have words for queer or trans because they were considered such an in, intrinsic part of human nature, of uh, the human experience, that there was no need to separate heterosexuality and cisgenderness from queerness and, and transgenderness. So th- they had places. Um, there's another, another group of people called the Dagara people um, in what is now known as Burkina Faso, where the queer people um, were considered um, a higher spiritual 
being, that they had access to um, other realms where the ancestors resided and could communicate and could um, ask on behalf of the village for special favors from these um, unseen ancestors. So it, it's not until Europe comes in with colonization, Christian and Islamic missionaries make their way onto the continent that there's a corruption of that understanding. And um, these uh, people in Africa are forced to start to think of homosexuality or transgender identity as something sinful or disgusting. But once I knew that, once I knew that the corruption was really Europe and Christianity and other religions, it freed me to imagine all sorts of things. And that is how I was able to do it. You're talking about queer identities in, in pre-colonial times not being distinguished from sexuality in general. I'm wondering if you think of kind of the social creation of race as part of the American project as like parallel creation where we created both a context and conversation about race that was new as well as this context and conversation about sexuality that was new. Indeed, because it wasn't as though continental Africans did not understand skin color. When they encountered Europeans for the first time, they referred to them as lacking color or um, skinless because they, they just couldn't understand why they did not have color, like a dark color. Um, mm. So they understood themselves as, for lack of a better term, black, but they did not assign a particular um, value to that to say these white people must be less than us because they look the way that they look. Whereas Europe looked at us and said, you are not human. You are less than. You are cursed. And so um, afterwards, of course, many African societies did indeed say, based on their behavior, the lack of color must be some sort of defect. <laughs> um, but prior to that, it was just, you know, your other kinds of human beings that we have never encountered before. So I imagine um, that in order to keep white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy in power, you do have to create these sorts of categories in which you can justify whatever behavior you wish against whomever you wish because you've decided by your own um, flawed analyses they are less than us. And that goes for race, that goes for gender, that goes for gender identity, sexuality, ability, um, class. There's so many categories in which um, our society finds ways in which to dehumanize in order to justify dehumanization. Yeah, um, I, I wanna bring the conversation back to the main characters of the book. The passage that you read was a throwback passage to previous context of Middle Passage. Um, the two main characters are on a plantation in the South, Samuel and Isaiah. And the story is, is fundamentally a love story, 
all this process of colonization and the creation of a slavery-based society here held these kind of intense threats of violence constantly. And you write about this in a beautifully terrible and horrific way where there's threats of beatings, of whippings, of being sold to different plantations, of rape. And all in the midst of this, your characters Samuel and Isaiah are able to find very small and very often hidden ways to be people in love. And as I was reading, I couldn't stop thinking about how the love story kind of made the characters feel like such real people. And I'm wondering if you can talk about how you used love in the story to create this really fundamental human relationship. And just by even doing that in and of itself, it does this thing where it rejects the premise of slavery that dehumanizes people as property. Indeed. One of the first things um, I knew about how I would have to tell this story was to ensure that Samuel and Isaiah's love was central. Not perfect, but central. Mm. We have this really um, Hollywood perception of love where you know you meet someone, you fall in love, and you live happily ever after. But the reality of love, and I'm talking about um, going back to its original meaning about dealing with someone as a someone, where everything doesn't always um, line up, but your life is somehow less without that person present. That is what I wanted to represent in Samuel and Isaiah. So they argue and they fight and they don't always see the world the same way, but they know that without each other, their lives are miserable. And that had to be front and center. And I wanted to show that because it sort of undermines this idea that enslaved ancestors were bestial, that they um, had no community or connections, that they allowed um, slavery to remove them from the human family such that they would not allow themselves to feel any feelings because at any moment, your loved one could be snatched away from you. Our ancestors fought every moment of every day in a myriad of ways. And loving each other was one of those ways in which they did that. You know, one of the things we know about antebellum slavery, particularly in the face of things like when we hear Kanye West say slavery was a choice and and things like that, is there were hundreds, if not thousands of rebellions They were not all all successful. Um, Most of them were not. But what was consistent was that they always happened. Our ancestors were constantly running away, upturning the plantation, burning houses, doing whatever they had to do to get out of that state. And that's the stuff that we don't learn in the public schools. And I think that's by design because we want to believe the fairy tale that our ancestors were happy and docile and that slavery was actually a civilizing force for them when the utter opposite is true. I know this book took you, I I read 14 years to write. And I imagine that a lot of that process, you kind of immersed yourself in this world that you were creating. And I'm wondering 
what was it like for you to immerse yourself in that world, which certainly has acts of rebellion, things that we can look back on and be excited about what they might become, but also so much brutality and terror. What was it like for you to immerse yourself in that world? It felt like home, to be quite frank. Um, Mm. Not much has changed. So when writing this novel, and like you said, it did take me 14 years, mainly because I had three part-time jobs when I was in undergrad, two part-time jobs when I was in grad school, and then worked full-time after I graduated and had to find, as Toni Morrison said, the edges of the day to write. So I would get up at 3 a.m. every morning and commit to at least an hour of writing and then go back to sleep at 4 just to wake up again at 6.30 to get ready for work. Wow. Um, So it took me a long time. But what struck me was, gosh, how similar the 21st century is to the 19th century in regard to how Black people are considered in this society. So what I discovered was um, fundamentally, from my perspective, the country has not changed very much in terms of how it treats Black people in terms of antebellum slavery and now. But what has changed are the names of the institutions. So there's no more cotton plantation, but now there's the prison industrial complex, which accomplishes the same feat. There are no more overseers, but now we have officers who do the exact same job. Um, When I was writing about Samuel and Isaiah, it was not that different. I did not have to stretch my imagination that far to understand the imminent danger they were in, what it was like to be black and queer in that time, what it was like to fear for your life every moment of the day, because at any moment, someone could come up to you and shoot you in the back because they thought that you were a threat because you were running away or what what have you. So it wasn't that difficult, to be quite frank. And so it was easy to slip into and imagine it so clearly. It sounds so real, but also so depressing to hear that. I mean, I I pulled out one quote that I wanted to read back. This is about the horrors of slavery, but I read this in the constant ongoing American context of violence. You wrote, there could never be peace, only moments in which war wasn't overwhelming. Um, And and that was a reference to the, the violence of slavery I know you you just described that there hasn't been a lot of change politically in terms of how our country treats black people in relationship to power and violence. But what has changed? What has changed? I'm struggling to find an example of what has changed. Um, Clearly, I don't have, um, I'm not wearing shackles, at least none that I can see. So that has to be a certain change. But I also still know the boundaries. You know, I grew up in Brooklyn, in the North, ostensibly the place of enlightenment where, you know, they're not like the South where, you know, the racism is overt and and deadly and there are sundown towns and all of that sort of thing. And I often tell friends that I grew up in Brooklyn in the 70s and 80s 
And I grew up in a particular neighborhood um, on the border of Gravesend and Bensonhurst. And I said, they never called these areas sundown towns because they would beat you down in broad daylight. Mm. Um, every day at three o'clock, the black kids that went to the local uh, public schools would be chased back into the projects where I grew up by, by white children, white adults wielding baseball bats and chains and bottles and throwing things at us and saying, go home N-word and all of that sort of thing. This was in the 1980s. The only reason why it's so different now is because Bensonhurst now is a primarily Asian area, a lot of Asian, um, some Russian immigrants, as well as um, Latino um, immigrants are now the, the majority population in those areas. Whereas the white people who are attacking us, mainly Italian and Irish, have moved to Long Island and um, New Jersey and other places. But uh, maybe it's my pessimism in, in this regard. But every time I think there's a step forward, I find evidence for three steps back. We are speaking with Robert Jones Jr., author of The Prophets. This novel is devastating to read. And part of the reason, as you're describing, is that the history packed into it is so deep and entrenched into our society. The novel takes place in antebellum slavery times, but so much of the culture that was there is still present. I want to return to the book for a moment because I really wanted to ask about a very particular character's story, James. Mm. James is a European overseer on the plantation. The part of your book that dives into his story and it kind of shifts into his perspective, it, it just made really clear that this context of slavery was, of course, brutal and terrible for black people on the plantation. But it was also not a good space for him. It made me think about how slavery was terrible for everyone involved. Yes. Clearly, when we look at slavery, we know the effects that it had on um, black people from the physical violence to the emotional violence, the spiritual violence, all of that. But what we don't often examine is the effect that it had on white people. Because in order to dehumanize me, to look at me as some sort of lesser being, you first have to dehumanize yourself. You have to forfeit your humanity to do that. And we never really examine the ways in which white slave owners, overseers and others had to forfeit their humanity and return to some bestial state of existence in order to perpetrate these acts against black people. That's the, that's the, the danger of violence. It's, it's not a rock, it's a boomerang. What uh, I think Baldwin said, you, you, you throw the bread onto the water, but it comes back to you poisoned. I think that is sort of one of those um, official rules of, of the universe is that by demeaning other people, you really only demean yourself. And I think because of things like um, material wealth, 
entertainment as distraction and I guess the thrill of being able to satiate your sadism, people in power don't really recognize that this thing is happening to them, that they are becoming something other than human through their actions. And you don't even realize it. And that's the biggest pity of all. You don't even get it. So I, I would maybe go as far as to say that slavery was worse for white people than it was for black people, because at least we retained our humanity. We're talking to Robert Jones Jr., author of The Prophets. Robert, you mentioned Baldwin. Oh, yes. And I want to shift gears for a few minutes to talk about him and your relationship to his work. You have an online pen name, Son of Baldwin, <laughs> that you've used for many years. I personally knew that name long before I knew your name, Robert Jones Jr. <laughs> you've been writing on your blog and on social media under that name, Son of Baldwin. And in many of the rave reviews you've gotten for this book, you got some comparisons to James Baldwin. I know you hold him in a very high regard. I'm wondering if you can talk both about his work and who he is to you, but also what it's like to be placed in the same canon as him. You know, I, I came to Baldwin rather late in life. I, um, I'm one of those returning students. I could not figure out my purpose until I was about 31 years old and um, then went back to college to um, study creative writing once I knew that that was the thing that I was born to do. And it was in my freshman year as a 31 year old that I discovered Baldwin's work. I had heard his name before, but I, I knew almost nothing about him. I just knew that he was somebody important. Mm. But my, uh, my political science professor, Jeremy Crace, he assigned an essay by Baldwin called Here Be Dragons. And I read that essay, it must have been, and this is no exaggeration, at least 12 or 13 times, because I was so struck by how well-written it was, by how incisive it was, by the beautiful use of language, by, it, I, it was so much truth, I couldn't even hold it in. And I thought, okay, I have to figure out who this James Baldwin person is and, and, and you know, learn so much more about him. So then I discovered he was black, he was queer, he grew up in New York City, and he was a phenomenal writer. All the things I was or wanted to be. And at that moment, I adopted him as my spiritual godfather was heartbroken to discover that he passed on in 87 when I was just 16 years old and, and extra devastated because I could have known him. I, I was alive when he was alive and did not know his work or know him or ever get to meet him. And that is, you know, one of my grandest regrets is that I wrote this book and he, he will never get to read it to tell me what he thought of it. Um, but once I was exposed to his work, I, I was wondering, well, why isn't he more popular? Because this was like 2002 and Baldwin had not had the renaissance and resurgence that he, he currently enjoys. And I was just thinking, this man was so on point. Like, why are we not like reading all of his work? Why isn't he being honored? Why isn't there a James Baldwin day or something? And I said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to start a blog. And I'm going to uh, 
talk about all the things that Baldwin raised, all of his points, and see if we can't discuss his work and bring him back into the cultural mainstream and really take a look at ourselves through his lens. And that was about 2007, 2008, when I started Son of Baldwin um, in honor of him to um, celebrate his work and his legacy. And that began to sort of grow and shift and it became, you know, its own thing, but it would never have had existed without Baldwin. And I would go as far as to say that I could not be the writer that I am without James Baldwin because he hipped me to so much. Like he opened my mind and expanded me in ways I did not even know were possible. And the fact that there are some people who are comparing my work to his, I get why, you know, that's, that's, um, you know, that's marketing. That's how you get to people to know, know of a person's work is you say, here's the, the pinnacle person that I can compare them to, but that I can't touch the hem of Baldwin's garment. Um, he, he, he was writing on some next level stuff that I, I hope one day I could achieve. So I'm entirely grateful that, um, people pick up on the fact that he is a strong influence of mine, but I don't compare to Baldwin in, in so many significant ways. I am definitely a disciple and he is one of my chief creative um, inspirations, but I have a ways to go before I can even be mentioned in the same sentence as Baldwin. For our listeners who are aware of Baldwin, but but less intimately familiar with him, if there was one thing you were to recommend people to read from Baldwin, what would it be? I'm going to go against the grain with this answer because mm-hmm. so often Baldwin was referred to by critics as um, being repetitive and bitter in his latter years. And I counter that with, he was being consistent and honest and you just couldn't take it anymore. Mm. So I would recommend reading his last book length essay, The Evidence of Things Not Seen. It's an overlooked work. People often dismiss it, but there is so much in there that Baldwin learned about himself, about the society, about white supremacy, that he's communicating in ways that are angry, but I would not dismiss them as bitter. Um, And it is, I find it to be one of his most remarkable works. So the evidence of things not seen. That piece is new to me as well. I will certainly be looking it up and thank you for your recommendation. Robert Jones Jr., you recently announced your decision to walk away from your social media presence, which again has been written under the name Son of Baldwin, where you have over 300,000 followers. Um, and you, you know, you just described part of your process where you've spent well over a decade, I think, I think probably more than 15 years building a presence in sharing writing and social critiques. Um, You talked about Baldwin as a powerful queer black man who was an incredible writer. And we haven't even gotten to Baldwin as an activist and an organizer. But you recently announced your decision to step back from that presence. And I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about what made you decide to walk away. Sure. Um, 
the first and foremost thing that made me decide, okay, I have to stop doing this is in 2019, I received a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, mm-hmm. which is a um, progressive, progressively degenerative illness. Um, at some point in the future, I will be physically disabled. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure how that manifests because MS is unpredictable and it manifests different ways in different people. So that could mean one day I'm blind, one day I'm confined to a wheelchair, um, one day I can't even get up out of the bed. It, it, it's, it, I really don't know. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that I, I had to ensure that I was doing for my, the benefit of my own health is removing stressors because um, stressors induce flare-ups of MS. And I, I was starting to see a correlation between my social media engagement and my flare-ups of MS. And I said, okay, at some point I'm gonna have to stop doing this. But the other part of it was, I don't like the direction social media is heading in. Um, what, I, what I'm finding is that it's, more than a tool for um, communication between um, marginalized peoples and organizing um, for social justice, it seems to be the tool of the moneyed, of the 1%, of the billionaires who are um, sure to become trillionaires as a result of the ways they're monetizing toxicity and encouraging divisiveness and giving bigots larger platforms. And I don't, I no longer think it is the space in which I wish to do my work. And so I'm pulling back from it and I'm thinking about other ways in which to not only do my art, but to also do my activism. What ways can I be more effective, more of an agent of positive change? Um, And social media was threatening to turn me into one of the lions in the Roman Colosseum. Even even people whose goal it is to create positive change in the world succumb to the incessant negativity of the social media spaces. Because what winds up happening, you get a reward for it, um, whether that is a psychological one or a monetary one. The more negative and pointed and um, vicious your posts are, the more likes and shares you get. And so I don't want to look at myself one day and say, gosh, what have you become? Um, What have you allowed yourself to fall to? I want to pull out now while I still have my conscience and my compassion and my deep love of humanity. I, I want to ask you another question about your experience and diagnosis with multiple sclerosis. In a blog post about it, you discussed it being more aggressive in black people than in others. Yes. And that from, you know, like a hard scientific perspective, there isn't really enough research to provide answers about that. But you also wrote about why you imagine that to be the case. I am wondering how you yourself are doing with symptoms these days. But I'm also wondering if you could talk about what you kind of hypothesized in there 
which is how social forces, including, and I couldn't stop thinking about the brutality of slavery that you wrote about in your book, The Prophets, have made it harder for Black people with MS? You know, I can't imagine the ways in which institutionalized racism has a direct impact on the health of Black people, the physical health of Black people. Um, the way in which it may be impacting us on the cellular level and the ways in which white supremacy might know this and is glad. You know, I, I think about, um, I recently changed neurologists because I got the sneaky suspicion that my pain was not being taken seriously. You know, there's this notion in American medical systems that black people have a higher tolerance for pain than white people. And I wonder how much of that contributes to misdiagnoses about people who have black people who have MS. I, I am in a MS therapy group, and the stories I've been hearing from other people with MS, black people with MS, about um, the ways in which their doctors gaslit them to the point of, of, of them having nearly nervous breakdowns because no one believed them. I have one friend who said they kept telling me I was imagining it and it was the beginning stages of schizophrenia. Hmm. Um, and, and then eventually discovered that it was MS. And that takes me back to antebellum slavery when alleged medical doctors said that the reason why enslaved ancestors kept running away from the plantation was because they had something called drapedomania, which they basically went insane. And that was the reason why they were running away from the plantation and not because they were being beat and raped and forced to work without end and being separated from their loved ones on a regular basis. They weren't running away because of that. It was because they had some fictitious disease, some white doctor made up. Um, there's a whole book called Medical Apartheid about the history of, of how Black people's medical lives have been uprooted and, and, and uh, dismissed um, in, in this culture. And so I hypothesize, yes, that racism might have some effects on us medically. And also maybe the reason why MS is so um, aggressive in black people is because it's not recognized as MS until we were already at near the point of no return, where we're at, you know, the most serious end of the illness and have not received a treatment as a result. And in terms of how I'm feeling, hmm. I just started a new MS treatment, something called Ocrevus, which is a once every six month infusion where the drug is designed to calm my immune system down such that it stops attacking my nervous system, which is what MS is. <laughs> and the, the drawback is it makes me more susceptible to infection. So I have to be really careful around people who have colds or the flu or even COVID um, or other infectious diseases because I am more susceptible to catching those things than I was prior to um, doing it. But um, the trade-off is that I feel almost 
back to my old self before I was diagnosed with MS and some of my symptoms, how, how, how it manifested in me is that I would feel completely numb, but only on the right side of my body. I've had, I've had problems with vision where my vision got so blurry that I could not make out any details. Sometimes it's difficult for me to walk. So I'll walk with a limp or, or something to that effect. But right now, as a result of the Ocrevus, um, I'm pretty much my regular self. Thank you for asking. I'm so glad to hear that you feel pretty much your regular self. It sounds like a very, to me, very scary experience overall. And I have a thousand more questions for you, but I'm going <laughs> to wrap up with one. In in the end of your blog post about your diagnosis, and, and I'm returning to this feeling that I have just hearing about it, it feels scary to hear about. You wrote, and, and this is a quote, I'm so afraid now, not so much of dying as of what I might leave dangerously unfinished. You're very welcome to speak on fear, but I also wanna ask you, what are you working on now? And what is it that you don't wanna leave unfinished? I have so much more left to say um, artistically. And my greatest fear is that what if I lose the ability to speak or the ability to use my hands, um, which are my gift? I, I, that's how I get my writing across. It's either through my voice or through physical writing. What if I lose that ability? And so I feel like I have a weight on my shoulder and pressure to get it done as quickly as I possibly can. Like I'm, I'm currently working on a second novel and I know in the pit of my stomach at the, at the core of my spirit that it can't take me 14 years to do this because I might not have 14 years of health in order to get it done. So I've given myself, I said, Robert, three years maximum, you, you gotta get this done. So I'm, I'm hard at work on novel number two, but I do live with that fear. It's not always um, foremost in my mind, but it's always in the back of my mind that I'm 51 years old now. And so I'm kind of past the halfway mark, so to speak. So. I got I got stuff to get done, bro. I got I have to make sure that everything that I could possibly say is said because I think of Wallace Thurman, one of my favorite writers who only got two books out and then died at like 32. And he was brilliant, brilliant, and you you just knew that he was going to have so much more to say, things that would have broke open the culture and 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 transformed art. And he never got to, to say it or do it. And so I also think about Baldwin, who died of um, cancer, and how much more work he would have been able to do if, if he had lived. Um, and so I am utterly devoted to finishing at least this next novel um, and getting it out into the world and making sure that it is my personal best because I'm, I'm not in competition with other writers. I only find community in other writers, but I am in competition with myself. Um, and I always want to be better than the last time. 
and different than the last time, having something new and novel to say. Um, so that is the goal. Well, Robert Jones Jr., your book, The Prophets, in my read, really broke open the culture and transformed art. It was such a powerful experience to read, and it dealt with the real nuances of love, and it dealt with the real nuances of the brutality of slavery, and I can't recommend it enough. Thank you so much for joining us, Robert. Jesse, this this has been a true blessing, and I, I'm really thankful and grateful that you've had me on this show, truly. And this, this interview, man, I, it, this is gonna stay with me for the rest of my life, I know it. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more episodes about our topics and guests on this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. Feel free to hit us up about something you've heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. This show is produced by myself, Jesse Strauss, and hosted often by Cat Brooks. Our theme music is by Steve Raskin. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusive by listeners like you. If you're in a position to support us today, please donate online at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We're all we got, fam.